0: Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. Welcome to Season 3 of Think Like a Game Designer. I'm very excited to continue to bring you more amazing guests, design lessons, and tips about the gaming industry. But I also want to share something new and exciting that I'm launching this year. In addition to the podcast and the book for Think Like a Game Designer, I'm also launching a masterclass for those that really wanna go deep into game design and work with an incredible group of people to take your projects to the next level. We've already had an incredible beta group go through the course last year. It includes video lessons from me, access to an exclusive Discord group, Monthly masterminds where we can dive deep into the actual problems that you have with your own designs and really walk you through everything that it takes to go from initial idea, whether you have a project you really want to work on or you have no idea where to start, all the way through to getting your game published, whether that's launching it via Kickstarter, launching your own company, selling it to a publisher, or whatever you want to do to make your game design dreams come true. If you think you might be the right fit for this course, Go to thinklikeagamedesigner.com to learn more. In today's episode, I speak with Bruno Fiduti. Bruno is one of the OGs of game design, releasing his first game in 1984. He's published over 40 board games and card games, including some of the ones that have personally influenced me the most. I remember playing Nightmare Chess back in the 90s where he was able to take the basic game of chess and add a bunch of cards to really mix things up. And I have played more Citadels than I could possibly count. We talk about the inspiration behind Citadels and how he came up with the concepts and tested it. We talk about his lazy method of design and how powerful it is and how he's taken dozens of years to be able to perfect it. We talk about how his... Background in history and being the world's foremost expert in unicorns affects his designs. We talk about collaborative design. Bruno is actually famous for making a lot of really great, really well known designs and collaborating with a lot of other very well known designers. And we even talked maybe about getting a collaboration going ourselves. And we talk about how his designs have actually inspired some of my own work, including my upcoming game, Night of the Ninja, which is a combination game that I originally was inspired by Citadels and Werewolf, which is a fun thing I can't wait to talk more about. And we talk about what the importance of good and clear rules and how to be good at writing rules, what's important, what makes for good rules or bad rules, and why so many rules out there are bad for tabletop games. So there's a ton of great lessons in here. Bruno is one of the best of the best, one of the originals that really had to kind of forge the lessons that we now take for granted as designers. And so it was a real honor to get to talk to him, uh, share those lessons with you, archive them as part of this podcast. So uh, without further ado, here is Bruno Fiduti. And welcome. I'm here with Bruno Phaiduti. Bruno, it is wonderful to have you here.
1: Nice to have you as well.
0: <laughs> so, um, you know, I got to say, it's a it's a real uh, honor to get to speak with you. I have been playing your games my entire life, and uh, they have been an inspiration for several of my games, uh, some of which are actually coming out soon. Uh, and so I, I'm just going to leave that as a teaser to talk about uh, how your games inspired me and the problems that I encountered and curious about how you dealt with them. But, but I want to start because you... <laughs> I want to start by hearing about your origin story because I was I was doing some research and your your background is, in, you know, you have both a historian and sociologist and you have you've been designing games almost as long as I've been alive. Uh, and so
1: <laughs> I'd love to hear about what,
0: what got you started and how did this background uh, come to life?
1: OK, uh, you know, I started designing games when I was still a student at university studying economics. Uh, well, just I think I was in a family where we didn't play that many games you know, my parents were very political, Marxist and you know games are not something very serious you know, they're not really useful and okay, you have to do things which are useful, so We played a bit, but we were not that much in games. So as a kid, I had a few games. I played a few games of Monopoly, like everyone, but I think not as much as most people. And... Well, then then as a teenager, I really discovered games. And I started to play a lot. First to play chess in the 70s. I think I was... Quite good at it. Not now. I've forgotten everything because you know it's all theory. You have to know. <laughs> now stuff. the
0: machines. Now the machines beat us anyway. So it, it was more <laughs> fun back then. <laughs>
1: you could be the best. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So and then I happened, when studying, to stumble into friends who were more or less the first people to bring uh, role-playing games in in France. Yeah. So we started to play, you know, what was there was at this time, it was Dungeons and Dragons and Tunnels and Trolls, and then a few more stuff came out. And at the same time, with these same friends, uh, we started to play a lot of poker before it was really this big poker craze. And also the first big. American games, you know, Game Buyer from Avalon here arrived at this time, also, I think, and the first Civilization and all that stuff, and then Cosmic Encounter and the first German style games, uh, and Tortoise and Scotland Yard and all that stuff. And so I started to play a bit of everything. I liked it a lot. And I was there, I think just by sheer luck when a few people decided that maybe it's time to try to do games in France. And we were not that many who knew more or less everything about what had been done here and there. And I think there was this small group in Montpellier. and So they just asked us, well, can you do something for us? And so we tried and... And I made my first game, which was Baston, it's kind of a barb roll simulation, which was something really, really heavy, and then Nightmare Chess, with a good friend of mine who's dead now, Pierre Cricker.
0: Yeah, I want to pause you there for a second. So so the when you say some of us decided to start publishing games in a world where that was never done in France at all, like l- break break that down for me. Tell me the story of what happened there. Like, was it some friends that were really into the publishing side and they're like, You're the you're the economist, you can make the game for
1: us? Is it how did this no, how it, did the, the roles come about and how did it come to life? I don't know exactly because you know, it went mostly through Pierre Créquin. Uh, because I think he was contacted by the games who, people who were creating, you know, Jeux Descartes and jeu actuel, which doesn't exist anymore now. And was a friend of him, whose name I've forgotten, who was also a sociologist, which was, who was more or less into games. And and I think maybe they asked him if he knew someone. I, I don't remember the details. You know, It was in sure. the early 80s. Uh, but well, in fact, Pierre and I started designing a game knowing that it will be published, in fact. Right. And, uh,
0: that's, very, that's very unusual
1: and to be able to have that situation. It worked quite well. And then at a toy fair, I happened to meet the people from... Uh, Another small publisher who was beginning at this time, it was uh Rudeau Delir, was making full Metal Planet and Supergang, and they played uh, nightmare chess and they wanted to do it, and that, that's how it all started. But you but you know, in those times, there were it was a very, 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 you know, maybe there were 50 people in France, in the rule of France, who were into games that's fewer than there is now in my street and the two joining one in Paris. So it was very, it was really, very easy, I think.
0: So Nightmare Chess is actually where I first discovered you. Um, I played a ton of Nightmare Chess. Um, <laughs> I love, I love the game. It was one of those things that just felt like this, it turned chess, which was something I enjoyed into now a game that I actually loved and we would play, you know, a lot. It helped with players have different skill levels It helped to create some uncertainty and variance. What, you know, a lot of people would think that doing something like just taking chess and adding cards to it uh, would not be uh, either successful or not be something that was sort of, that they would start with. What, what was the inspiration behind that? And what was the design process there?
1: I think the inspiration was a Cosmic Encounter. We had just discovered Cosmic Encounter and we liked it a lot. And Pierre and I were good chess players. And it started with the idea that maybe we could mix the two together.
0: Right. Right. So, this is the kind of thing I always talk about to new designers: that this idea of just like take two things you love and combine them together and yeah. magically, you know, and that's a, just a fun, a awesome starting point for, for like yeah, most yeah. of my it, games. I just very that's, often, that's it very start.
1: often works, that's true. You know, when you're trying to make a game out of only one, usually it's just, either it's or it's, either it's or it's not as good as the original. Right. But when you start to make a game out of two or three, I think that's how you often make new games, because well, sometimes you can make one out of nothing, but it doesn't happen that often. Mostly it's, you know, taking inspiration here and there. Yeah. taking what yeah. you yeah. like in a game, what you like in another, and and just yeah. putting it together.
0: Yeah, and very often the right answer is to, to combine the two things. And, and the, I think a new player instinct that's very common is to uh, take the two things you love, add, put them together, and then add stuff to it. Whereas very often the better answer is put two things you love together and then cut stuff away from it, right? Like clean up some of the things that, yeah. that you know, remove, the stuff that gets in the way and just highlight that new interaction. Um, I think that's something that you've done very well. Uh, and, and, I mean, the simplicity of Nightmare Chess. When I think of Cosmic Encounter, you you very much just like okay, what's important here? Okay, we have different starting powers, and we leverage those into a baseline game that people already
1: understand. Yeah, you know, I think when when I started designing games, and maybe maybe for the ten or twenty first years, it was mostly starting complex with putting lots of things and and then cutting things out and making it simpler. Mm -hmm. And I think I needed maybe 20 years to learn to make it simple from the beginning. Right. Now, uh, maybe my games are not as crazy as they were. Uh, Maybe they feel a bit more constrained. Maybe it's because of this change in method, because my new method is, I think, much lazier, in fact, because, you know, I don't have to do all this work, but now I can do it. So maybe maybe that's because I changed my way of designing games that my games feel a bit different and less original. Maybe it's just because I'm getting old, but, uh, but it's much more efficient. But I really needed much, much, much time before I was really able to do it simple from the beginning.
0: So I, I want to dig into this because I know I, the lazy method of game design, this is actually one of the things that I teach very often is like, you know, keep it simple, keep it stupid, like start as as easily as you can, make your prototypes as basic as you can, just to get like the iteration going and get the process starting. So how would you describe if you, if you could for someone that was trying to to emulate you and maybe not having to spend 20 years learning to be lazy? Uh, what What is the lazy game design process that you use now?
1: I think the lazy game design process is, yeah, it's making it simple. And if you make, the way to be sure that you're making, that you are making it simple is to have everything written down and be very short. You know, even my really, really big uh, games, I'm now working on this. Yeah. Now working on this Profess here. It's a big, big game. There is a large board. There are, you know, there is a large board. There are hundreds of cards. There are, you know, hundreds of cards, lots of tokens, hundreds of tokens for everything with dragon and people and everything. And it's you know you are managing a rock band in a fantasy universe with you know, and moving from city to city and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But all the rules are on one page. And I think when now what I try to start with the rules, which I didn't always do at the beginning, I start with the rules. And I must have all my rules on one sheet of paper. And so, so it's a way to be sure that everything is perfectly clear I don't have to improvise when playing that, okay, go is to do this and we will see. No, it doesn't work this way. You have to know from the beginning what will happen and how.
0: Right. Yeah. So so let me let me let me break that apart a little bit more because I, I love this and, and there's a lot of parallels to my process. So so you'll start with with an inspiration of some kind, right? Whether it's the combining two things like chess and cosmic encounters or whatever the things are. And then you'll you'll quickly move from that to kind of rule sheet I assume there's some kind of brainstorming process in between as you're sort of figuring out those rules or, or what does that what does that process look like when you go from inspiration to the rule sheet
1: uh, it, it really depends uh, I think yeah you know, because sometimes I start from a small mechanism sometimes I start from you know trying to create some Interaction between the player or trying to tell some kind of story. So there is no rule for with what exactly I start. Mm -hmm. But I always try to start with something extremely plain, obvious, simple. This is the goal of the game and this is how it works. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And also... And in the same way, my prototype are extremely basic. You know, I'm very good very bad at graphic design, I'm very bad at drawing. Uh I cannot do any of these things. And I don't really use it. You know, I take two or three key parts and and that's all. And I print on cardboard and I cut. But everything is extremely basic because it's also a way that if the game works with no art, with nothing, with something which is just plain and almost ugly, it means that it will work better when it will be really nice. But yes. if it works this way, it's good. Also, if it's <clears throat> when you're prototyping simple and basic, when your rules are short and very clear, it's very easy to change something. Very easy to say, okay, let's change this. Right. If you have something, you know, big and complex, with lots of elements, and you ask the friend to draw you a nice board, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you don't want to change everything, and and you sometimes are blocked when you realize that something is not what. Right. Right. What you need. Yeah, that's that's the
0: that, that's the real counterintuitive and powerful principle that the the bad, the ugly prototype actually helps you because you're yep. not as resistant <laughs> to changing it. Right. If it looks nice, you don't want to write on the card <laughs> or you don't want to tear up a board. And, and so it's actually I think it's actually a downside for a lot of people who do have skills in graphic design. Um, they always want to make it pretty. I actually have some people mm-hmm. in my course I'm teaching on game design now that are like that, and I've had to train them. To be like, no, show me something ugly. I'm not gonna play it unless it's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Start ugly. Then you can make it pretty later. There's plenty of time for that. Um, so that's great. I mean, and 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 just to reiterate this whole process, because I think it's so powerful. You know, you have been doing this for so long, you have over 40 published games. And, say, and, and 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 there's such a diverse series of them. Like you talk going through your history of games, there's so many different genres, so many different core mechanics and interactions and player counts. And, and, and that idea that you start from somewhere where it's simple, right? Whether it's the story, the player interaction, the mechanic, you turn that into something that you can keep write down the rules and keep it on one page and have a prototype that's as, as simple and ugly as you could make it. And then start the iteration and testing process from there. It's just like, it's just such a great fundamentals that Again, you said it takes twenty years to learn to do something <laughs> that sounds so it sounds
1: so easy, but it's just it
0: takes it takes a very long time. Nobody starts there, uh, so I, I think it's really
1: wonderful. Well, there to are share, people to share who that. start there. I think now, now some people start there because now there is kind of a culture of game design, which mm-hmm. there was not forty years ago. So it's possible to see more people to discuss with people to see what they are doing. Yes, so it's possible to go much faster.
0: Yes, 100%. I mean, that's where, yeah, I think I could... I think young game
1: designers don't have to discover everything by themselves, like uh, more less did. And even there were, you know, before me, there was, you know, Alex Randolph and Sid Saxon. So we already had this one to look at. But now young game designers, they have hundreds of people to look at and they don't have to discover that much by themselves.
0: Yes, yes, I wish I had that stuff when I was starting and I already had all of you and, and the whole other generation of game designers to lean on when I was getting started. Um, so so what what advice while we're on the topic? What advice would you give to aspiring game designers, people who are, are, are you know, have that passion and love games and want to get started in design other than than this following this process, which is I think absolute gold? What other things might you say? You know one of the one of the challenges I hear a lot is that yes, there's a lot of information on design. But it's also so crowded, it's very hard to get started or intimidating to get it, get discovered or get involved in the industry. What what advice would you give to them?
1: Well, uh I think the first advice is to keep a day job. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh no, but it's also important because you know, I think it's it's like with literature. I have a few friends who are writing novels. And a few friends who are designing games and i think we face the same problems is that when it really becomes our job we have to do it and we want to do it in the way that sells that we find a publisher etc cetera, etc cetera. and in a way it can help because it can direct us in the right direction and we avoid to lose time, etc., etc. But it's also constraining. And for me, there was a period, I think, where it, the time when it was the most difficult for me to design games was when it started to be really my main job. Because when it wasn't, okay, I was designing games as on an the side, and if it worked, if it sell, made some money, okay, That was good. And if not, it's not important. I have a day job. Now, if my new games don't sell, it's not important because the old games sell enough. So I'm back more or less to the same situation. But in between, there was a time where I was thinking that, okay, I have to sign three or four games to publishers every year. And in a way, it was... Making working on them more difficult. Yeah. You know, always trying to uh think what will please them and not, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So my advice to aspiring game designer, not necessarily young, you can aspire to do it even when you're old, you know. I'm trying to start writing now at 60, so why not starting designing games when you're old? Uh so um My advice to aspiring game designers is trying not to take it too seriously. Trying to be right about it. Uh, Not to be, you know, because when you start to say, okay, I I have to do it, I have to do it, um," and you you, you are looking at your sheet of paper, your computer screen saying, I have to find something, I have to find something. It's the best way not to find anything. So try to take it, very, very rightly, and the best way to do this is to be sure that you get some money from something else.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I think, I think that's my my instinct is that's very much coming down to individual psychology of people, right? I think there are some people for whom I do agree that you shouldn't quit your day job before you've got income sufficient income already coming in from games. Uh, so I, I support that. Uh, you know, you want to play smart i mean i quit law school to become a game designer uh but that was because i had a job offer at a company oh. to design games right oh. so i knew i was going to have a salary so i took a risk but i also had an income and then I, know, i'm I,
1: i'm still part-time, part-time teacher yeah I never, yeah i never completely quit that's 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 I, amazing so you, I still you teach you do... 10 hours a, 10 hours a week
0: huh ah, that's wonderful so, and, and you mentioned, I think I heard you just say you're you're starting writing uh, as yeah. a profession as well?
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I'm writing a very, you know, I went back to my old PhD and I tried to update it and make something much, much lighter and mainstream out of it.
0: So I love when there's, you know, a lot of people who are kind of polymaths, right, who, who are interested in a variety of different, um, a variety of different fields and how that influences design. Uh, James Ernest comes to mind as someone who has such a, 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 an incredible background with so many different things that have then informed his design. How would you say your, you know, your your PhD your, as a historian and economist and sociologist and all of that and teaching, how has that informed if it if it has at all? your game
1: design and, and and sort of cross pollinated there. I don't, I don't know because I tend to think that I cannot see exactly where it informed it because my games are not about economics. They are not about history. I even didn't, you know, there are games about unicorns, but I didn't make one. So, and, I'm supposed to be the world specialist on unicorns, and so uh, I don't think it informed them directly. But the fact that I, the fact that I am a great reader, I read a lot of novels. Uh, the fact that I'm much interested in foreign languages, even when I'm not always that good at them. The fact that I'm not bad at math, even though I never really uh, studied it. Uh, I think the fact that all this comes together. I think also a problem with games is that games which are pure math are boring. Yeah. <laughs> and games which are made by people who don't know anything about math are broken. So, it has to be something in between. It has to uh, be a bit of it, but not too much. That's great. That is great. You're 100% right. <laughs> and, well, and I think maybe that's what makes me a relatively good game designer is that I have, you know, this kind of, you said, kind of a polymath, something, different approaches, half literary, half scientific, and, well, and trying to it helps me make things relatively consistent and not completely straightforward. hmm
0: Yep, no, I think that's I think that's great. I love that games that are all math are boring, and games that are no math are broken. Is I'm gonna definitely use that uh, that line. Uh, it's uh, so I I learned about this as I was uh, researching and preparing actually for this podcast. But maybe a lot of people don't know. You kind of dropped the line that you are the are supposed to be the foremost world expert on unicorns. Can you explain a little
1: bit to our audience what you mean by that and why you're such an expert in unicorns? Well, I wrote my PhD about how uh, people, mostly physicians and scientists, in the 16th and 17th century, found out that after all there were no unicorns. So, and I wrote 600 pages about unicorns. And And this meant that to write this, I had to move back what people will start thinking about unicorns in the Renaissance and so move back to the medieval bestiaries etc etc and so I've studied you know I think I've read everything about unicorns I have a few hundreds of books including stuff in Latin and everything so <laughs> I, I'm That's the specialist
0: <laughs> but but, but you've never made a unicorn game not once no. in all the ones. <laughs> I've writing games for like 40 years and you you're the number one expert on unicorns and you never thought, eh, maybe people would like a unicorn game. That that is surprising to me. <laughs> uh okay. Well, I've uh maybe uh maybe that's a topic we can dive into because one of the things I want to talk about is your your collaboration experience. Um uh so uh let's 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 jump to that then. Uh you are are pretty well known for for having a lot of collaborative designs and and partnering up with other well-known designers who are not in the same location as you um, and working remotely, and this has been going on for you know nowadays working remotely is you know everybody, <laughs> yeah. is, right? It's it cliche, uh, but you are the OG of working <laughs> remotely <laughs> and and potentially working with people who are you know when you're working with other great designers who maybe they have egos or you know you're 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 only able to kind of parse and communicate you know sporadically. I'd love to learn a little bit about what about that process? How does that work for you? What draws you to that kind of collaborative design? Uh, and, and maybe we can kind of riff on that for a little while.
1: Well, I think, I think it works for me because, you know, the paradox about uh, board game design is that board games are a social activity and many board game designers are solitary guys who are working you not know, just by themselves and it's a solitary work, unless, unlike, you know, video games, for example, which are always work of a team, or almost always. And I'm also a solitary guy, but I'm also a bit lazy, and I'm often, often I feel feel blocked with something. And I think the point in collaborative design with board gaming is when I'm stuck somewhere, I don't know what to do with this. I know there is an idea somewhere, but I don't know exactly what to do with it. I say, okay, who can be the right guy to do this with? Who can have the idea to unblock this? And on the other hand, I think now that Almost everybody in the board game business knows that I'm doing that kind of collaboration and with lots of different people. I also got offers to do this. And people right. know that I work more or less that way. So I also very often have offers from friends or sometimes from people I've never heard about tell me, okay, I want to do this kind of game, this game, I have this idea, I don't really know what to do with it, or I'm locked here. And if it looks interesting, I say, okay, I answer, and let's try to make something together. But what made uh, collaborative board game design for me relatively easy, even you know, 20, 30 years ago when there was always no internet and, uh, and no video and all that stuff, is that very often, in fact, it's not really completely collaborative design, uh, which means that, of course, there can be meetings, but very often it's not working together. It's working one after the other. It's One is doing something more respirator. It doesn't work. I don't know what to do what to do with this, then sending the stuff, sending the file to the other one who then kind of a relay, you know, one and then the other mm. and, and then the other. And always taking back where the other designers is blocked. Yeah. And it's a way also to to go fast when, when designing board games, you know, with, you know, one idea, the other, and jumping back and forth. So it's more, it's more back and forth than really together.
0: Yeah, kind of a kind of a relay race, uh, if you will, yeah. of, uh, of of pass, uh, passing off the baton. That's that's fascinating. And do you do you usually have... So one of the great things you already mentioned is you write down your rules and you're very clear in that communication, so that helps with the handoff. Do you... Typically, when you hand off, you mentioned you'd say, okay, I've got this to here. I'm not happy with this. I don't know what to do here. And then you'll hand it off to the other person. Are there usually like deadlines or expectations around, okay, you know, you'll have a month and then hand it off again? Or is it pretty loose?
1: No, it's very loose. There's no, really no rule. And it's also easy because I say that I like to write rules. You know, every publisher will tell me that even when they don't publish my games, even when they don't think that my games are the best ones. They are always ready to look at them because they know that I write good and clear rules. They they just have to read the rules and they understand it. I don't know why, but it happens that I'm good at writing rules. Uh, Probably much better than at designing games, but it helps designing games a lot. And the fact that I'm good at writing rules, it also makes me good at collaborating because I can send the rules to the other and he immediately sees a point, see where, where there is a blockage, et cetera, et cetera. Let's... Yeah.
0: So rules, rules. Are, I, 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 I almost, I, I'm tempted to kind of divert into that because that is an area where so many people fall down. I mean, so many games have the worst written rules. <laughs> it's so <laughs> trouble. Even the published versions of games are just so hard to get through. And, and
1: you, you know that yeah. you're lucky because you're reading rules in English. Yes. and writing rules in English is so much easier than in French, and really? so English rules are so much better than French ones.
0: Interesting. What is, it, even, is it? What is it about I, the language that makes it harder?
1: I think the two languages work a bit differently, and English is shorter, is more direct, or less ambiguities. It's considered it's not considered as improper as in French to repeat the same words over and over, which mm. is very useful in rules. Yeah, You know, lots of small grammar systems, which I think make English a better language to write rules, really.
0: Yeah. So so let, let's talk then maybe about a couple of principles that um, that would work for people that are trying to write their own rules. So I think there's two I've heard from you already, right? One is start early. Write the rules at the beginning, write them down and make sure that they ideally you can fit them on a page right now. And again, in the final rule book, there'll be more, but, but you know, the quick bullet points and getting the information out there early, fit it on a page. Uh, You've also mentioned that it's useful sometimes to repeat important information multiple times so that people can get it. Not that
1: much, you know, most important is to, if it's very short, you don't have to repeat, right? When I talk about repeating, just, you know, repeating words. That mm-hmm. you know, In French, you must not repeat the same word twice in a sentence. Ah. It's not correct. It's, it's bad French. Huh. Even if the word is prayer, it's token, it's money, you must not use the same word twice in the same sentence.
0: And it makes complicated
1: to write roses. <laughs> <it. laughs> in English, it's not a problem. You don't <laughs> care. <laughs>
0: okay all right well so let's assume that people are writing in english because that's um you know most of my audience that's listening <laughs> yeah, yeah. to this i'm going to guess is in english um, actually i, I you, write uh, you know for all you foreign I write language my, listeners out there you know, I write my rules but what would you say makes a good rule book or what would help someone
1: to write a good rule book? i think things might be very direct uh Clearly organized. Organization is not always the same. It can depend on the game, but you must have, you know, part, you know, this part about, you know, turn order, this part about what happens during the player's turn, and this part about, you know, the scoring. And everything must be, you know, very clearly organized and, you know, short sentence, which says the things directly. If you make burns, them a bit aside so it's clear that they are not really in the game or, or they must help the game also you know the setting of a game can be a way to help explaining the rules sometimes you choose the setting because you know there are concepts there are concepts which fit with the game you know it's a game about where you take cards from your opponent so it will be something where you can steal and you use the word steal etc etc so try to have a vocabulary which makes things simple and direct. You know, when writing rules, for example, I often use different corals. One choral for what happened at the end of the game, what one choral for what happens during a player's turn, one choral for the setup, you know. It's this kind of thing. Things must be very, very clear. I actually put very few examples in my rules, even when I know there will be examples in the final rules, because except in very specific situation where you need an example to make things clear, I think that if things are clear enough, they don't need an example. If they need an example, it's that they are too complex. Hmm. I always try to explain things in general as a rule, not with examples. Exactly. that's fascinating afterwards yeah
0: i like i like i mean obviously you know clear organization short sentences be very clear to the point and i love that i mean i i do think examples are very helpful but the idea of if you need one that means you're too complicated you need to go back <laughs> and refresh that's i like that a lot as as even if it's not a hard and fast rule as a as a forcing function to make you make your rule simpler i really like that i like that principle Okay, I. uh I'm going to need to start talking about Citadels because I don't know how long that will take me because it is like one of my favorite games of all time. Um, I have played, I don't know how many hours, of (laughs) uh, with my friends. It is, it is incredible. And, uh, I want to dig in, uh, and I'm also going to spend some time picking apart uh, some things because I think it's uh, it's the thing I can deep dive on the most and I've always wanted to ask you about. So talk to me a little bit about the origin and inspiration for Citadels uh, and how that kind of game came to life.
1: Okay. Uh, I think Citadels came in part from the idea that I wanted to make something about city building. I like the idea of city building, of cards presenting buildings. And I was toying with this in my head for a few weeks or months. I don't remember exactly. And then I played a small game, which has been largely forgotten now, which was uh, Ferreter, the traitor by... Uh, Ferreter? Ferreter. Okay. It's German. Mm-hmm. It means, yeah. And it's a game by uh, André Casas- Marc- Marcel-André casasola merc And uh, it was a strict only four-player game. And there was in this game a character selection system, which is more or less the one in Citadels. Not exactly, but, you know, there was this idea of, you know, I think one card more than player and getting around and One of the players was a traitor because it was a team game. One of the players can traitor, which is more or less what gave the idea of the Assassin in Citadels. He -hmm. was able to move from one team to the other. Mm -hmm. And I took this character selection system from this game because I thought, oh, it really fits well with everything else I had in my head, but I didn't know exactly how to choose these characters and use these different powers because the abilities of the characters in Citadel, it's more or less, it also comes from the uh, aliens in Cosmic Encounter, except mm-hmm. that they are changing all the time, which was right. something new at this time. Now there are lots of games with characters who are changing. You don't have always the same one, but it was new at this time. And... So it's, it was a mix between my idea of making a city-building game with, you know, the cards in front of you who are becoming your cities, uh, using strong uh, character effects similar to the aliens in Cosmic Encounter, and selecting this every round with this selection system from Ferretter. Yeah. And so... I mixed all this, and, well, and it happened to work quite well quite soon. And it was also a fun idea, because, you know, also at this time, we were talking about collaboration. Uh, we had a discussion, I think by phone, with uh, Serge Raget. And we decided more or less to start working on this, you know, card game about city building together. Mm-hmm. And then we spent well, maybe something or one month uh, on his side, one month on, on mine, and we ended up with two completely different games. Mine was Citadels, and his game, which was not completely finished. In fact, I took it over with him and it became Castle. Huh. So but but they both started from the same idea, and we at the, at the beginning we were. Thinking that we were designing one game, but it ended yeah. with two completely different ones, and it's Fascinating. Uh, so that's what I'm glad. Castle is coming back next year, and I'm glad because it's it's really it's kind of the twin brother of Citadels.
0: Yeah, I love I love those kinds of stories where you you know you kind of start you're working on the same project, and then the divergence creates two you know different but great games. I I think about. um san juan and race for the galaxy as to mm. these kinds of tableau yeah. building card games that were worked on together and then became just so so <laughs> divergent in what they ended up being and i love both you know they're they're really they both bring a lot of interesting things to the table um so citadels it, i i want to dig into this 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 uh the core kind of player selection mechanic which is you know the draft the player draft right that to me is uh, you know as as you know you sort of i didn't know its origin story from the other game um but that's sort of the heart of what's going on in in there and that what the the i've spent a lot of time drafting i mean in many ways ascension for me was a combination of the deck building of dominion and the drafting from magic for you know where you're selecting cards from a changing row of things. so similarly sort of inspired and uh and i've worked on a lot of games in this space and I have a game called Dungeon Draft where all you're doing is drafting every turn. Uh, And so I want to talk a little bit about what makes drafting games good. What about it? and, And I think there's several brilliant things that were done in Citadel's and and interesting interactions there. So uh, I'll, I'll start off a little open-ended for you and then and then I'm gonna prod with some specifics um that I think uh that hopefully come up in, in the discussion. So what what do you think when you're trying to make a character selection game or a drafting game, what makes those good? What kinds of principles do you do you use when you're working on projects like that?
1: You know, I think a nice a really nice thing with drafting games, be it character or other types of uh cards is that they are a game which balances themselves mm-hmm. you don't have to make a balanced game because you know if there is a better card okay it will be taken more often in citadels characters don't have to be balanced first because right. it's not always the same player who chooses first and also because okay, if a character is if people think that a character is better he will be killed or stolen from more often than the other and the whole system is right. self-balancing,
0: right? Well, very specifically, you're not just—it's not just that drafting is balanced on its own, but you put in characters like the assassin and the thief, right? I think Citadel yeah. doesn't work without the assassin and, no. and thief, at least. Right? You have to have that ability. to Say, okay, I think mm. this is the best character. That means that person's going to pick it. That means I need to kill them, and they're that. Now they went mm. from mm. best to worst instantaneously, um, yeah. and that's so powerful. I mean, the whole game hinges on it, so it becomes a very—I've
1: yeah, used something. In fact, very similar in a small card game. Mechanically, it's completely different, but there is the same idea in a small card game which just came out, which uh, I don't know if you've seen it, which is Vintage. And Vintage, it's a set-correction game, but some cards are much better than others. But the problem is, if you want to put a card in your collection, you first have to put it face-up in front of you, uh, on your turn you put a card face up in front of you you steal a face up card from another player now first you, as you remember, first you score a card from the card in front of you then you steal a card from another player and then you put a face up card in front of you so the problem is that you cannot directly score your cards you have to put them in front of you and then the other player all have the possibility to steal them before you score right and so You don't want to play weak cards because it means that you will only score weak cards, but you know that if you play two good cards, they will be stolen. So you have to... And it's the same kind of system than in citadels where, okay, this is the one I must choose, but it's so obvious that I will be killed. And it's... ah, In a completely different setting and system, there is the same idea that... So something preventing you to from making what is really good and obvious and powerful.
0: Yes, that's wonderful. And and actually, this this principle applies, you know, so broadly to all games. You know, even as I'm making, um, I've been working on the with Richard Garfield on the new version of Soulforge. We're doing a Soulforge Fusion card game. Mm. Uh, one of the things that it's a, it's everybody gets these sort of unique algorithmically printed half decks that you then yeah, get to play yeah. together. Um, and one of the things about it is you know, you can end up with things that are definitely not balanced, right? That there are, you know, because of the way that the algorithms are working, some decks are going to be better than others. So we're seeding a lot of what I call silver bullets into the file, where if I know that a certain type of card or certain deck combination is too good, then I can play with certain other ones that are going to be very targeted to destroy that particular strategy. And so, in a, in even in a large card pool kind of game, you can still build in tools that let players do the balancing for you, right? That let them attack stuff that gets out a lot. You know, you do your best to balance things, but in reality, you know you're going to miss and you want to miss mm. to some degree. You mm. want there to be different power levels because that's fun yeah. in the process of discovery and the excitement of, oh my mm. God, I got the super powerful card. Uh, and so so giving players the ability to balance your game for you and the many ways that show is a wonderful <laughs> sort of trick and, and, and frame to be thinking about as you're making your game, mm. uh, And it creates that fun, beautiful psychological mm. tension that's so present in Citadels. And I hadn't heard of vintage. I'm definitely picking it up now because that sounds perfect for my play group um, and i i really i really enjoy that so that's that's fantastic um so another principle of drafting games uh that i'll prompt you with because i think another thing it's a thing that citadels does very well also is you know over time you need to create building differential incentives for the different drafting cards right so in citadels your the buildings that you have have different colors uh many of the cards that you draft have references for those colors so i know that a card is going to be better for me if i have a bunch of green cards in play versus red cards and thus i know you know that um and so that 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 differential power level per player that card means a lot more to me than it does to you i think is also really critical for drafting games to become interesting and exciting yeah maybe you can speak a little bit about that or or other ways that you think about making sure that the players will value things differently to make interesting trade-offs, or do I defensively take a card away from you because I know it's so good for you, or do I try to take the card that's best for me? Uh, yeah, I, maybe I, could speak a little bit I, about that. I think
1: that Im- yeah, I think that Im- it, it's true that it's one of the things that makes Citadels work because there is not one move that is good. You know, when you are playing chess, you know that both players are always aiming at the same thing at the beginning; they are in the same position, and later in the game. In his position, he must play this way. In my position, I must play this way. And in citadels, it's it's even stronger. It's, it's really that, you know, depending on the card you have, depending on what's happening with you, uh, okay, he will probably... I should do this for me, but I should do this against him. I think he should, he will do this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh... I will once more talk about one of my upcoming games.
0: <laughs> you're good. You're a good you're a good marketer as well as a game <laughs> designer. I respect that very much. Yes, go on.
1: <laughs> I, I have a game going out with uh I think at the end of the year with Portal. Uh the game will be dreadful circus. And there is an auction system in this game which I look a lot. Which I like a lot, and which is based on the same idea that depending on the card in front of the players you more or less know who wants what and what is good for which player. And then it's an auction game, which means that on your turn, you auction a card that can be bought by the other players. And you know that it's more more valuable for him than for him, etc., etc. But it's not an open auction. Players are making secret offers that you look... You choose the order in which you look at these offers, huh. but when you decline an offer, you cannot come back to it. Ah, oh, I love so it. So maybe some card is really good for you, but you say, "Okay, here we look at my offer last. I will make a very small offer because we will first look at the other, and then it comes to mine." Okay, you get it. Or ah, oh, but maybe we look at me first, and I have to make a better offer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, so the really excruciating moment for the prayer is, okay, do I look at this offer or this one first? Because I know that the two players are in completely different situation. He really wants it. Uh, he doesn't really want it. And you can also pay with different kind of stuff, not just with money. So offers can be a bit complex. And uh, so it's... And it all comes from this, you know, difference of situation. But, you know, there was this in... I always come back to Cosmic Encounter because it was really my my favorite game as a late yeah, yeah. teenager. And there was this in Cosmic Encounter because depending on the alien you are playing, you are playing in completely different way. You want to do this, he wants to do this, he wants to do this. And so you have to play your game and against the games of all other players, which are not the yeah. same.
0: Yeah, yeah. So th- there's a couple of threads I want to pull out of this because this is this is great stuff. So t- tell me the name of the game again. I want to make sure because I didn't hear it. The, the, dreadful
1: Circus. Dreadful
0: Circus. Okay, I I love it. Um. So the I think it will um, be
1: out by the end of the year.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. So the uh this. Uh, one, the fact that you keep coming back to Cosmic Encounter, right? One of the things that I've I've seen, I've noticed from designers is that there tends to be, Richard Garfield called it the radioactive spider bite, right? The thing that gets you to become a game designer, the thing that you like love and that that inspires you, that then largely informs every design you've ever done right? So for Richard, it was Dungeons and Dragons. For you, it sounds like Cosmic Encounter. For me, it was Magic the Gathering, right? These things that like, there's something that just unlocks and you're like, okay, there's a core, there's a heart of this that I want to like build upon and create a world around. And I think that's always fascinating. And it's good to be conscious of what's what's driving you there. Um, And then I also, you mentioned the word excruciating in your description. And I think that's a great word um, because a lot of people, you know, games are fun, but the reason why games are fun in many cases is because there's this core tension, right? There's a thing. And I and I I actually notice this theme now. Uh, the more I think about it, from your games are particularly excruciating. I have <laughs> a, I, 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 I and, and so maybe we could talk a little bit about, about player pain and those agonizing choices um, because they are so the heart, right? Giving people that tension and that, I don't know what's gonna happen next, I'm not sure what to do. And then the release of that tension by revealing either it worked or it didn't or the game resolved in some way is is really at the heart of design in many ways. So maybe you could speak about, about how you build that excruciation, uh, that excruciating moment uh, in your games. Mm.
1: Well, I don't know. You know, I think it's... Uh, you know the uh, etymology of excruciating. It's putting a martyr on the cross. Ah, really? and uh, I think and you know and Marty's in a way they liked it and they wanted it (laughs) right right that's true (laughs) that makes sense (laughs) and uh, I think yeah I I try to build in my games indeed moments where a player has to Think of what he will do, and when thinking on what he must do, must think of what all the other players are thinking about. Mm. What's yeah. happening in all the other player, players' mind, and what do you, what do they think I am doing? Right. And yeah. and that's why you know it's kind of a permanent prisoner's dilemma, in fact, because yes. you know you are always. Thinking about what you are doing and what the other players are thinking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that's, that's great. And that's I think that's true in citadels. When choosing a character, it's always as much about your game as about a bit about the other players' games, but most, mostly about what other players think that you are doing.
0: Yes. Have Have you seen the movie The Princess Bride? yeah yeah
1: yeah so uh, I, I think about visible. that scene
0: yeah. that scene with the wine so i clearly you yeah. cannot choose the wine in front of you yeah. because you are
1: you but yeah. you would know that, that i would know that so i clearly it. cannot and choose in, the wine in front of me and so, games, so you have an infinite, yeah. <laughs> infinite regression in, games, of thinking. in games you can i try to do things like this maybe a bit more complex with more elements so that it's not and with unbalanced element because you know in princess bride what what makes it it's fun in princess Bride is that both sides are in the, the same situation and it, yeah. which means that there is no possible answer but if the situation is a bit more complex and something is better et etc et it's yeah you know, it, it's like when yeah. playing rock, rock paper scissors uh, right first one is bo- first round is boring and then it becomes interesting because right. you are thinking okay he made this what he will do what he will do and because you you know that you cannot be really random so it's right. it's when it becomes interesting and that's right yeah and, kind and, of and this thing.
0: is this is advice i give when it comes to not just so at the design right thinking it's great just to underscore what you said that to to think about putting players in a position where their decision has to hinge on then what other people are thinking and what they're going to think of what I'm thinking. And that, that creating that creating a core tension is just wonderful space. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to even the development and balance for a game, like we've talked about earlier, that, Creating that rock, paper, scissors dynamic where if I know what you're going to play, doesn't matter how powerful it is. Rock could be more powerful than everything else, but if I know you're going to play it, then I'm going to yeah. play paper and it's not going to matter that your rock was more powerful. Yeah. Um, and so creating those um, unbalanced games that still have the kind of rock, paper, scissors dynamic that players can adapt to the strategy is just, is just wonderful, fertile ground for design and, and clearly something that you've exploited very well. So... I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a little self-indulgent now, if that's okay, um, because I <laughs> want to well. talk about my
1: game. I've talked about mine. You can talk yeah. about yours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I have a game that's also coming out later this year called Night of the Ninja, and I will tell you that the playtest name for that game was Werewolves in the Citadel. Uh, <laughs> it,
1: was,
0: it was, it was my homage to taking the the fun of drafting from Citadels and the character selection with the uh, social deduction uh, game genre um oh. and and it was very so what the to give the kind of brief overview uh players each round players get split into even teams and you only you know who you are but other people don't and each member of your team has a rank one is the best rank all the way down to 5 if you're playing with 10 players and then you draft your action cards that let you do things in the round and those go through in a specific order and then you go through either gathering information getting to see who's who or uh, killing players and trying to finish them off before. And the team with the highest rank surviving member, everyone on that team wins, whether you personally were alive or dead. And so the ability to use this player psychology and this information exchange with the idea of drafting and and picking the cards Mm -hmm. ended up becoming a really, really fun experience uh, because now I don't know, I might want to take the most powerful cards, which is like the assassin or killing a guy or whatever, but if I know that you have that, then I get to act earlier and kill your guy. And so we created a lot of those same dynamics. So A, I want to thank you for uh, the inspiration. Um, but, <laughs> but, but B, I wanted to talk about something because one of the things that we all try to do when we build on previous designs that we, we love is we also try to address the challenges. So when I first started working on the game, um, I did it exactly the way you did, where it was one hand of, you know, however many cards, eight or nine cards. I'd pick one, pass, pick one, pass. But there was so much downtime. Right. And this is true it, in Citadels, but it's a shorter, it's, it's you know. It's a
1: problem and, in Citadels. It's
0: Yeah. And so I ended up building it so that every player uh, shrunk it down. So every player gets three cards and passes and drafts and you end up drafting yeah. two cards. So yeah. you don't get the same effect of passing around the table, yeah. but things move faster. And so yeah. I wanted to use that as a jumping off point. So, you know, as one of the challenges in Citadels, did you, was there a point where you ever thought about changing the way the draft worked and making it so that it didn't have that downtime? Or was it just sort of, I'm taking this on and I'm going to leverage it for as much as I can.
1: You know, I think when Citadel was published, which is long ago, downtime was not that much a problem. Players Mm. didn't want games to be as fast as they want Ah. it now. Now people want their game both very dense and fast. Yes. And I think that in the 90s, it was not the case. People right. were there was no problem with playing an hour or an hour and a half in a game uh, with a game like Citadel's. so it was not a problem. Maybe it would even have been considered too short. Uh, you, you know with system like the one you suggested, so it was right. not a problem. And then you know the game is out and now it, it's played that way, so it's it makes doesn't really make sense to change it. Even when yeah. actually, I think they will put on an extension, an expansion. I don't know when. And among with the rules I've suggested for it, there is two-player rule which uses more or less the same system as yours. Which means it's, hmm. it's only with two player whereas, you know both players play two characters, but they both start with half of the deck, choose mm-hmm. one, pass to the other player. Uh, so it's something oh, that's similar. Wonderful. Oh, so it's, it's something. serious I, right, I want
0: Even if that game doesn't come out that way, I want to try it that way. I'm going to play. I'm going to bring out my copy and and play some players. <laughs> it sounds
1: great. Um, but actually, I don't yeah. like. I I don't think Citadel is a good two-player games. I think, the, yeah, the a two-player version of Citadel, it's didn't sell. I think it's Greedy Kingdoms. I don't know if you played uh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I like Greedy Kingdoms it's actually a two players' citadels.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I, and that's where it's so funny you talk about it in terms of, like, player expectations and speed. Like, that was one of my big driving forces for Night of the Ninja, was to make things as fast as possible. Like, each mm-hmm. round takes five minutes, and then you yeah. play multiple rounds in the session mm-hmm. to, to to win the game. But it's like that that speed and expectation of taking things people love and then just delivering it in a quick punch is something that I think that, yeah, the market really wants right now. And it's, it's fun to play
1: in that but space. You, you know, that's why with uh, I think two or three years ago, we changed the rules in Citadels. I don't know if you've noticed, I think it was eight districts and now it's seven. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's just because okay now people want their game a bit shorter and it was the simplest way to make the game a bit shorter yeah and that's s- wonderful seven districts <laughs> when the game was first published it would probably have been too short it's just a, right it's yeah that's really interesting you know. to think
0: about in terms of like what how the market has changed so much you know i saw i saw you wrote an article on your website about uh you know how games you know sort of older games performing very well um uh, but then you know with the pandemic maybe yeah. new games not getting as much traction and so it's it's sort of interesting to see that dynamic of people wanting to go and play the games that they love but that new games in order to break through have such a higher burden and they have to be so kind of snappy and quick and get people right away because otherwise they're just going to go back to the to the kind yeah. of games they know and love
1: yeah it, it's it's also is that you know it was not a problem 20 or 30 years ago to have a game where you have to play two or three or four times to really get the hang of it and and then it becomes really good, which in a way is the case with Citadel because it's the first play which are very slow when you are looking at all the characters. Once you know the game, it can be quite fast. Yeah. But Now, publishing a game where you have to play it two, three, four times before it becomes fast enough, it doesn't work. It has to be fast enough from the beginning.
0: Yeah, that's actually a great great point also when you're sort of talking about drafting games in particular. It's one of the biggest challenges that drafting games have, right? A game that's asking you to make these choices from a variety of different selections that requires you to kind of understand, like, what the downstream effects are of this first choice and how that's going to what the you know what the pool of cards is like and what are the possible things that could happen like that whole psychological game is just not accessible your first time playing um and and so it's a real dilemma i'm actually facing this with another game that i'm working on now it's like a worker placement game but you have a draft and of cards at the beginning and it's it makes it a lot of fun but you, it, for new players, I have to just say, don't do that. Like, just here, Back. here's your cards to start, yeah. and then that, play this that, later. That's
1: that's how it. Yeah, that's how uh terraforming Mars plays. Mm-hmm. I think the first games you don't you don't draft because it makes no sense. You don't know the game, and right. Once you've played the game two or three times, you draft. And
0: yeah, so that's that's one of the things that I think is a good tool for people that that want to have those depth of games. But in the modern era, you know, you got to. Onboard people more quickly, so you give them a a lighter kind of starting point that lets them understand what's happening, and then introduce them slowly to the bigger things. It's it's one of the things I love about when I work. I mean, most of my work is in tabletop games, but when I do work on digital games, the ability to have a tutorial and actually only give you part of the rules at a time as you move through lets you do so much more. Uh, for players, I don't, have you ever have you worked on any digital projects outside of no. your ports? No, nothing like no. that. Do you have I, any interest in something like that? I actually
1: almost never play on computer, and you know mm. very very light games. But I, I I'm not a very digital guy. In fact, I, hmm. Fair I, I, when I'm just my myself, I prefer prefer to read novels than to play on the computer. I play when I am with friends, and so I play board games.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been, it's a wonderful time. Uh, you know, I never, once I saw, you know, kind of the iPhone and the iPad and those things come out, I p- predicted that like tabletop gaming would be dead, right? I mean, why would people play tabletop <laughs> games when they have all of this technology and they can do all of these things? And boy, am I glad I was wrong. I mean, <laughs> boy, am I glad that we all still get to hang out and play tabletop games. <laughs> uh, you know, it has been wonderful to talk with you. I know uh we're getting close to the end on time. I wanna um what what other things would you would you be interested in uh in sharing maybe with our audience or people that where they can find you and your games and learn more? You have so many great games that you've already teased. Uh how do I have people that want to come and find you and, and find your stuff? Where do they go? What do they do?
1: Well, that's my website, even when I don't update it as often as I did a few years ago. But I still try to post something from time to time. So if you go on my website, it's faiulty.com, you will see what's happening with my games, my new games coming out. Great. I think I will have many games coming out probably. Theoretically next year is every, if everything this year, if everything goes as it's supposed to be, you never know. Right. Uh, and. I I think that's the easiest way. I'm easily accessible on Facebook, but just follow me. Don't ask me as a friend because, you know, there is this 5,000 limit and I'm always nearing it and removing people. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I understand (laughs) the talent. I'm also on Twitter, but not that much. I never understood how Instagram works.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) there's so many there's too many platforms now they're like you got to be on clubhouse and you got to be on this and that i'm like you know what that's right. I'd love you to stick to a couple Facebook and Twitter are definitely the ones for me uh, as well. So, uh, I hear that. So, uh, so that's great. And, and, and it's been awesome. I, I want to just sort of underscore your website too, because, uh, you know, digging through it, there's a lot of really great articles and talking, you know, you're very direct about what's going on in the industry and your thoughts on different mechanics and things that are going on. I think it's, it's wonderful that you share that stuff. So I do encourage people to, to check that out. Um, and and i got to be honest i you know i'm i'm really i love your games and your game design philosophy so much it has it has brought me so many hours of joy uh over my life i can't even count um and now is inspiring even games that i'm working on to this very day so so i want to thank you for that and thank you
1: for being uh being here for this podcast i thank you for receiving me it was very really nice Nice
0: sure discussion. and so maybe uh maybe we can uh find a way to uh collaborate uh together at some point and uh, have you back no on no problem talk about new project. <laughs> you know how to so, do it
1: you are worked yeah. with something just email me and we will i will tell you if all i'm right. excited by it or not
0: <laughs> great i'm definitely taking you up on that offer
1: <laughs> all right bruno thank you so much <laughs> thank you goodbye
0: thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed today's podcast If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast.